Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza. We're glad you've joined us. We've got a great program today with a super special guest, and I'm going to let Chris introduce him. Thanks, Ben, and hello to our listeners. You know, over these last few months, we've been tinkering with the format of the podcast a bit, including working in guests from time to time. And that's why we're very excited to welcome today's guest, the former CEO of American Airlines, and clearly one of the great leaders of the airline industry, Mr. Bob Crandall, who's with us today. Ben and I have both had the privilege of working for Bob, uh, but not just working for Bob, learning from Bob. And while he's been retired from the airline business for more than 20 years, his insight and observations are always spot on. Bob, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you've been up to this past year while we've all been locked up? <laughs> I suppose I've been up to the same thing as everybody else, Chris, which mostly is hang, you know, hanging out around the house. We haven't been anywhere. I mean, we haven't certainly haven't traveled anywhere for the last year. Actually, that's not right. We went up, uh, Jen and I chartered an airplane and we went up to Gloucester, Massachusetts, and we had various members of the family there. As they came in, they quarantined, but uh, it's kind of a family compound. So in the course of the summer, we had my daughter and her husband there for most of the summer, and we had uh, selected grandchildren and their uh, current uh, living best friends uh, that came in from time to time and we've got separate buildings and the consequences you know they were we, we had we had kind of a nice summer and then we chartered an airplane and flew back but we haven't been, I haven't been on a commercial airplane since uh, the COVID thing began and aside from that time in Gloucester, Massachusetts about the only people we see are when we go for our morning walks and wave it, wave at people, whether it's in Gloucester or here in Florida. <laughs> well, it's great so, that you, know. you at least got to see some family. <laughs> well, yeah, I've known it. It's, 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 you know, it's been uh, obviously for us, like for everybody else, frustrating. But because uh, I don't have to work anymore, uh, it hasn't been as bad for us as it has obviously been for a lot of people that have to earn a living, and particularly for people that have to earn a living in, uh, in things like being a, a waitress or working in hotels or working on cruise ships or working in airlines, uh, so for whom it has been very difficult. Well, that's a nice lead in, Bob, to the next question, which is you managed through a lot of changes in the business during your time at American, but where did you think about a global pandemic as you thought of scenario planning when you were running AA? And I, I would have to say to you, uh, I've never been a great fan of risk committees because it seems to me that's really the board of the directors. That, that's really the job of the board of directors to think about risk and, of course, the responsibility of the chief executive. Uh, but the notion of a, of a pandemic of these proportions, uh, since uh, although I'm a student, a reasonable student of history, and I knew about the effect of the affair of 1918, 
which was the last time we had something like this in the United States. Uh, I really never, never attached any real probability to an event like this. And I, I, I don't apologize for that fact. <laughs> I don't think anybody did, uh, including the national health authorities, uh, which behaved very, very badly in the beginning of, the, of this whole event. So the answer is no, I didn't, I didn't expect it. Uh, the problem is, as you know, is that from time to time, the, the uh, airline industry is, is subject to these enormous sort of out of context risks. Nobody thought about uh, a terrorist attack uh, on the world uh, on, on, uh, on world towers either. And they happened. And nobody thought about this. And it happened. And it sort of underscores both the essentiality of the airline industry because it is, after all, our only inner city transportation system other than the automobile and the essentiality of, uh, of the federal government in terms of being the investor of last resort. The government has to keep the airline industry uh, operating extant uh, and the industry uh, you know, has to do a better job, I think, of recognizing its, its uh, susceptibility to these kinds of events. So, Bob, to your point, back in the day, you were a pretty ardent free marketer as it related to the airline business and weren't a fan of Chapter 11 restructurings and other kinds of things that um, impacted the industry in, in odd ways. But now with the action last week by Congress to enact more COVID relief and the airline industry standing to get another $15 billion or so, what do you say to critics who think the airline industry has received a disproportionate share of federal aid this past I, year? I say they're wrong. Uh, you need to correct your history a little bit there, Chris. I was very much in opposition to deregulation. Both Al Casey, who was then the chairman of America, and myself thought deregulation was, was bad public policy, and I still think it was. Uh, now, I, I do not think that regulation in the way the industry was regulated before deregulation was good public policy either. But somewhere in the middle lies, uh, I think, uh, what, what ought to happen. The fact of the matter is, look, the air transportation system needs to be more ubiquitous than it is now. It used to be more ubiquitous in the sense that it provided service uh, to a lot more points. And I think ubiquity... Uh, is an important aspect of the aviation system. But similarly, because the industry is so, both so important and so susceptible, it, it has to recognize that from time to time, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the recipient of large injections of taxpayer money. And the consequence is the industry then needs to, I think, do two things. Number one, it needs to behave in ways to safeguard its cash reserves, in ways that it has failed to do, in, certainly in recent years. And at the same time, it needs to recognize that the public does have a stake in how it runs itself and is therefore entitled to some reasonable amount of regu regulatory oversight. Now, sensible people will, will argue about what a reasonable level of regulatory oversight is, but nonetheless, uh, it, it isn't a laissez-faire world. 
Well, Bob, given that then, how, how would you grade the industry's general response to the pandemic now? I mean, the, we, we were thrust into this and the industry's responded in certain ways. Are they doing the right things? I, I think the industry's done pretty well, to be honest with you, Ben. It, it drew its capacity down dramatically. And as, of course, it had to do, but it's done it in an organized, sensible way. Uh, it, it has sort of, it, it is in the process of, of using this opportunity to rid itself of the least fuel efficient uh, of, its, uh, of its aircraft. And, and to the extent that it's possible within their uh, capital constraints, it's, it's bringing on board new and more, more uh, fuel efficient aircraft, and that's important. I think the industry has, at the same time, done a pretty decent job of safeguarding customers by uh, insisting on masks and other kind of controls. And I think it's done a pretty good job of trying to safeguard its employees. So on the whole, I'd give the industry a pretty decent marks in terms of how it has behaved. Well, if you were sitting in, in an airline board room right now, Bob, you know, you've got the financial hole to dig out of. You've got the looming issues related to climate change that not just airlines, but all industries going to have to be facing. You know, what would be the top two or three things on your mind, uh, kind of moving forward? Well, the first thing I, I the first thing I, I, I'd want the management to, to bring together a plan to say how are we going to how how are we going to remain how are we going to safeguard a higher level of financial flexibility in the future. In other words, the next time somebody knocks down a big office building, I don't want to have to run to the government uh, for, for, for cash. How, how are you going to take care of that? And one, one of the things, for example, that the industry ought to simply do is, is, is sign off the whole notion of buying back stock. That's not something the airline industry ought to ever do again. It, just, it, needs, to, it needs to build very large cash capital reserves when the time comes when it is able to do that. Uh, I would also, I, I would say to, I, I say to the board, look, we, we do have to get to net zero pretty soon. What are you doing about learning how to burn, uh, let's say for the sake of either hydrogen or green ammonia? Uh, green ammonia I can run uh, aircraft engines. Uh, it maybe can't run them with, in a sufficiently safe and efficient way today. What are we going to do to, to, to promote research into how to get that done? We've got to burn something other than kerosene, and we've got to start doing it pretty soon. Otherwise, right, we're, we're not going to make our contribution to solving the climate crisis, and the climate crisis has got to be, has got to be solved. Well, we're not, we're not going to have customers to carry around and we're not going to have locations that they want to visit. So, so the, the, those are things we, we need to do differently in the future than we've done in the past. Well, Bob, thank you very much for your time here. And before we send you off, I just want to ask you one more quick thing. This is really unique that we have you on this podcast, and we're thankful on this podcast that we have a nice broad listener group that includes C-level people in the industry and lots of employees in the industry. Is there anything else beyond what you said that you want to just say to the whole industry now? No, I, no. Aside from the fact that they should, they should be proud of themselves. You know, 
Dan, we've all, all both of you guys and I have, have enjoyed working in this industry for a whole lot of reasons. Number one, because it's interesting. And number two, because it makes a real contribution to, to, to the world's both, both financial health uh, and, it, and, and by connecting people. So people in the airline industry ought to feel proud of themselves. Proud of themselves for having, for, for creating certainly the safest and most reliable public transportation system the world has ever seen. Uh, yeah, it's had some, it's had some difficulties uh, and it gets criticized uh, in, in lots of environments and lots of the time, but it does a pretty damn good job and the people do a good job. And they should, number one, be proud of themselves and number two, be grateful for the opportunity to work in an, in an industry that does something important. Bob, this has been great. You know, we learn from you every time you talk and uh, you've been a teacher to so many people. So we appreciate your spending a few minutes with us today and, and with our listeners. Yeah, thanks, guys. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks a lot, Bob. Take care. Coming up in our next segment, listener questions. And our shout outs for the week when Airlines Confidential continues. We want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the U.S., moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza. And I'm Chris Chimes. Chris, that was great. Thanks for reaching out to Bob. You know, I have one more story I'd like to tell that I think our listeners might enjoy about Bob. In my first year working for American Airlines, so this was back in the mid-1980s, and I was just out of college and went to this meeting that Bob used to host in the first quarter of each year. He would go out to lots of stations and have what were called president's conferences or president's meetings. I don't remember what the exact term was. Yep, I remember them well. Yeah, yeah. so and he'd go and he would just you know give an update on the company to employees and answer questions and things like that. It was great. And so I'm sitting there, been with the company for a couple of months, and this question comes up. I don't even remember it was, but as part of the answer, Bob says, everybody look down here at the front. This is Bob. Bob runs our Oklahoma City station. Bob, tell everybody here how much money you spent on rags in your stations last month. <laughs> and Bob, I don't even know if his name really was Bob, but Bob like says something. And Crandall looks up and with a finger says, I'm telling all of you people who run airports out there, if you don't know how much you spent on rags last month, you don't know enough about your station. <laughs> and I was like just out of college and I was amazed hearing this guy who like had this huge persona and he's thinking about rags in Oklahoma City. It made such an impression on me of how detail-oriented he must have been and how detail-oriented I was probably going to have to be to be successful at that company. And I thought of that story. I thought of that story through my entire career because it, it's just been a reminder that you've got to sweat all the details. Yeah, I mean, at, at the risk of offending 
subsequent uh, bosses I've had, uh, he's clearly one of the smartest people I've ever worked for, if not the smartest. And from a communicator's point of view, he was really a master at saying things both eloquently but very simply. And uh, you know, during the interview or congressional testimony, when he started talking, he knew exactly where he wanted to end that point, which is really a skill that a lot of people need but don't have. You know, it was like a gymnast hitting the landing or a diver making a clean entry into the water. It's, it's a very remarkable skill that when a speaker knows where he's going to go at that point and get there and stop, that's, that's a really a talent. Well, you know, I bet a lot of our listeners have worked, you know, if not directly, indirectly for Bob Crandall as well. And I'm sure there's a lot of opinions, but I hope they all, every, all our listeners really enjoyed that interview. Airlines Confidential is made possible with the support of our sponsors, including Seabury Capital. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm with a 25-year track record in advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services, and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's Seabury, S-E-A-B-U-R, capital.com. Ben, as our listeners know, this is the part of the podcast where we take some of their questions. But first, we heard from several listeners about last week's discussion about Cutter Aircraft flying from LAX to Mexico City. In particular, we'd like to thank Jim Anderson, who provided the most informative response. He wrote, regarding that LAX Mexico Cutter question, it's all about cargo. QR operates Mexico City service via both LA and Miami, along with LAX Guadalajara services as part of its cargo network. Really nothing too strange as a host of foreign airlines, including Cathay Pacific, Cargo Lux, Emirates, and Korean Air link Mexico and Latin America markets via U.S. points. As you might be aware, freighter networks often are made up of multi-stop circuitous routings, so hopefully that adds a little bit of clarity. So thanks again to Jim. Now, as far as new questions, this is from Walter in Seattle, and it's very timely given the host of new routes that U.S. carriers have been announcing the last several months as they move aircraft away from business routes and into more leisure markets. Hey, Chris and Ben and Seth, too. Love your show. I'm wondering how airlines design and research their routes. What kind of key metrics or tools does the industry use for doing such route planning research? Ben, this is up your alley. Take it away. Well, it's a great question. In my class that I teach called Airline Economics at George Mason University, I devote an entire class to just this question. And uh, I'm not going to give our listeners that old class right now. But in general, airlines look at where demand is, of course, and then try to apply capacity, which means what size airplane and how many routes to fly or how many frequencies to fly to get the total number of seats per day to meet what they believe is the demand for that route. Now, the challenge that the airlines have right now is demand is so uncertain. And the number of people who used to fly between New York and Chicago, for example, says nothing about who's going to fly between New York and Chicago next month. So airlines are in this mode of really experimentation. They know more people are going to Florida. 
than to New York. So let's add more flights into Florida. They know more people are going to sunspots or states that are a little more open. So let's add more routes there and let's see what sticks. In general, airlines don't have to guess this much. They have really good tools, a lot of data. One of the things the U.S. government collects is it collects a ticket sample of everybody who flies. So you can look factually at how many people flew per day each way in every market in the U.S. and how much they paid for their tickets. So that gives airlines a really good data source. And if they don't even have that data, they can use other data. I remember, for example, when I was at Spirit and we were looking to fly into Armenia, Colombia, there was no nonstop service into Armenia. So it was hard to figure out what the real demand was. But two sources we looked at is we looked at telephone data, how many people from the U.S. were calling Armenia, and we looked at remittance data, how much money was being sent to Armenia from the U.S. And both of those things suggested that there was a really good affinity between the U.S. and this city that had never been flown nonstop. So we experimented and we tried the trip and Spirit's still flying that trip today. Well, based on that analysis, there ought to be a nonstop flight from the Chimes household to the Nordstrom Rack. But um, (laughs) uh, 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 we have another question from Katie in Chicago that actually kind of dovetails very nicely to this. So I'm going to just cut to that and, and let you follow up with the previous comments with an answer to this question. She writes, as airlines launch a new route, how do they determine if it's a winner, if it has potential or if it's a dud? A Broadway show that's a flop can close within days or weeks of opening. If an item at Costco isn't moving, it loses its shelf space pretty quickly. It doesn't seem that simple in the airline business. Given the advanced booking patterns, do airline execs have a sense before a new route even launches about whether it's viable or not? And if it's not, how do you cut your losses? Well, Katie, this is an absolutely fantastic question because you're right. Airlines are businesses. So just like Broadway or Costco, things that don't work should get cut pretty quickly. But it is a little harder. Passengers book their tickets far in advance. So airlines can see that and they can see what is booked for this new flight that we haven't flown yet that maybe starts on July 1 and we're here in April. We can see how many people are booking that. We can compare that to what our expectation was of how many people would be booked this far in advance and how many people will book more close to departure. And from that, we can, as an airline, estimate whether the flight's going to be as full and with the kind of revenues we hope when it actually launches. The problem is if it's not looking like that, it's very expensive to cancel right away because you do have some people booked. So you're going to have to reaccommodate them in some ways. And if it's a new city or a new route, it may be very expensive for you to reroute them or maybe have to use other airlines to get them there. So sometimes the airlines will actually fly the route for a little while to carry the people who did book it and maybe hope it'll book a little bit longer. The bottom line, though, is that many airlines don't make these moves quickly enough. The airlines that are best at it are actually the low-cost airlines because they're they're more concerned about every route making money and they don't have as much business traffic that could be at risk if they cancel a route. There was a... Um, term that I learned working for U.S. Airways when you and I were there, Chris, from our boss then, Rakesh Gangwal. And the term he used was called refrigerator scheduling. 
And British Airways had a flight that flew from Charlotte to London and from Baltimore to London. U.S. Airways started flying from Charlotte to London and British Airways couldn't support the Charlotte-London flight anymore. But rather than pull out of Charlotte, they flew London to Baltimore and continued the plane to Charlotte, even though they had no legal rights to pick anyone up in Baltimore and carry them to Charlotte. And Rakesh called this refrigerator scheduling. He said, because it's like when you have a big party, you have all this food left and you don't want to throw it all out. So you put it all in the fridge and then a week later you realize you can't eat it all and you throw it out. (laughs) And sure enough, about six months later, British Airways canceled the Charlotte Baltimore tag. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have to wonder in this current time with airlines somewhat chasing routes, trying to make it make things work, are they looking for perhaps losing less money or breaking even on a route versus really trying to make money right now? Or there just seems to be a lot of chasing of leisure routes and what's going through their heads as they're putting these together. You know, Chris, I think what they're really trying to do is make cash. And let me explain quickly what I mean by that versus making money. Right now, we have, thanks to the the stimulus bills that have happened, airline labor is essentially being paid by taxpayers through the government. So airlines don't pay extra to fly a flight when the labor is being subsidized. The airplane that they have, they're paying for whether they fly it or not. So what they look to say is, if I launch this flight, can I cover the truly incremental variable costs that are incurred? The cost of putting fuel in the plane, the cost of maybe putting the crew in hotels if they have to stay at the end of this trip, and anything else, the cost of the landing fee at the airport. And if it covers all of those things, then it's going to generate positive cash flow, meaning that the bills, the the incremental bills the airline has to pay for that flight are more than covered by the revenue for that flight. So the airline at the end of that flight has more cash in the bank than they started with. That hurdle is not good enough most of the time because you do have to pay for your employees and you do have to pay for your airplanes and you do have to pay for long-term maintenance. And that hurdle doesn't cover any of those. But right now, that's the hurdle that airlines are using to say, do we fly this route or not? Can we end with more cash than we started? And if we can, it's better for us to do it. So to borrow your refrigerator comparison, they're eating the food before it spoils. So we've got this thing we got to use, which is the aircraft, and let's use it to our best advantage, kind of like checking the expiration dates and making sure we eat eat that food before it goes bad. That's exactly right. Well, you're listening to Airlines Confidential. Finer Wine is next. But first, we want to thank our friends at TA Connections. Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections paving the way for a new chapter in crew logistics management. Learn more at taconnections.com. That's taconnections.com. Okay, Chris, I'm going to let you take this finer wine. It's from Jim in Powell, Ohio. I made a quick round trip on AA this past weekend. The staff and flight crew seemed genuinely interested in pandemic safety and everyone wore masks. However, on two of the 100% full flights, there was next to no air available from the overhead nozzles. The air in the plane seemed stagnated. I understood I was taking my chances with full planes, but thought there would be at least the normal amount of ventilation for an airliner. 
The jet may have high efficiency filtration as they claim, but if the clean air isn't supplied into my breathing zone, the filtration doesn't help me much. So I tried to do a little research on this, um, Ben, and I guess I landed on, I don't think this is a fine or a wine, uh, maybe just a misunderstanding and also an invitation for our listeners to help us out. Uh, the air vents above each seat have to be adjusted by the passenger. We know that. Um, they are a supplement to the cabin air that's recirculated, refreshed, and mixed with outside air. So that's the cabin air that's replaced every two to three minutes and cleansed with the use of HEPA filtration systems. The air that comes off the overhead nozzle is from that same supply of cleansed air. And some aircraft don't even have individual nozzles anymore, especially many newer aircraft. And of course, many wide bodies where you can't easily reach the ceiling panel from your seat don't have these vents. I can't tell if this was an issue of Jim not knowing to open the vent. I'll give him more credit, and maybe he did, and he didn't feel the airflow. Now, I know that the temperature and in-cabin airflow is calculated by the crew based on passenger load and other factors. I couldn't find anything about whether the air vents can be closed off to speed up the in-cabin recirculation. So if I'm missing here, I'm going to open this up to listeners for some help, and maybe, Ben, you've got an idea too. But in the meantime... I'm not going to ding Jim with a whine or give him credit for a justifiable complaint. I think it's it's somewhere in between. I think you're right, Chris. I don't know any more than you do on this. I have been on flights where I've adjusted the nozzle, and sometimes it's a very strong stream, and sometimes it's a very weak stream. And I've noticed that difference. I've never noticed when there's no air that comes out, however. So I think this is a fair thing for him to ask and a fair thing for customers to understand, like you explained, what those vents really do. And does it mean if I'm not getting flow from the vents that my air really isn't being circulated? I'm not, I'm pretty sure that's not the case as you described. Well, before we sign off, I want to remind our listeners that we love your feedback, comments, and questions. Remember, we have a new phone number, 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the links to contact us. We're available on all the major podcast platforms. Chris, my shout out this week goes to Marriott Hotels. Now, in an airline podcast, why am I shouting out a hotel? Well, it's because they've decided to give every one of their employees who gets a vaccine, a COVID vaccine, that they will give them four hours of pay. They're basically saying, we'll let you take the time from your job to get the vaccine. Now, I recognize that not every company can afford to do this, and there are some companies that might even require their employees get the vaccine before they come back to work in, you know, maybe more healthcare sorts of things or things. But I think it's great that Marriott has seen how important getting the vaccine is, is willing to put their own money forward when their business has been really affected by this as well, of course. And is saying, look, we care so much about this. We're not going to tell you you have to get the vaccine, but if we do, we'll do it on our time, not yours. In general, I always think carrots work better than sticks, and this is a good carrot. That's great, Ben. Uh, My shout out is medically related as well, but it's of a different nature. I want to give a shout out to Dr. Oz of the television program, who responded to a passenger in distress last week at Newark Airport, and with the help of an AED, revived the 60-year-old man who was in cardiac arrest. Airlines and airports were leaders in the deployment of these life-saving devices that are now pretty commonplace in more and more public venues, and literally thousands of lives have been saved since American Airlines deployed the first aviation AEDs in 1997. 
Until next week, I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm Ben Baldanza. This has been Airlines Confidential. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.